Well, if you would do a favor for me this morning, uh, this sermon will be quite a bit different than other sermons that we've given. And uh, what I want to ask you to do is open up your um, notes, if you would not mind. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Would you take out a pen and take notes as we go? Uh, The reason I want to ask you to do that is because you will not remember everything you need to remember if you just sit and listen. And I think what we're going to talk about is very important, very helpful, very relevant to your life. And so that's what I want to ask you to do. If you don't do it, you're not a lesser Christian. I'm not going to judge you. But I think for the most of us here, we need to really engage in this in a different way. Now, some of you are geeks and some of you aren't. I'm going to get a little geeky this morning. Are you guys okay with that? Yeah? All right, good. Um, Sometimes I like to get geeky. Sometimes I want to preach. Sometimes I want to teach. But this morning, uh, we're going to get a little geeky. And I'm just going to ask you to come with me and do this with me. So I want you to imagine a world where the Bible never existed. I want you to imagine a world where the Bible never existed. And you have to answer the following questions. Who is God? What is his name? What does he look like? Is God a he? Is God a she? A third option that we can't even conceive of? Does God have a wife or a husband? What makes God happy? What makes God sad? And unless God himself reveals these answers to us, there is no possible way we will ever know the answers. Science cannot give us the answers to these questions. There are so many details about who God is and what he wants and what he's doing and what he thinks and where he's going. And unless God reveals it, you will never ever know the answer. And the Bible is God's self-revelation to humanity, and the Bible is absolutely essential. So this Bible, this book, or this groups of books we have, how did we get it? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Can I trust it? Pastor Tim, next week, he's going to answer that question. You geeks, you'll love it. Is the Bible infallible, inerrant, and inspired? And if so, what does that mean, and how does that change the way that I open up the Bible and understand it? The third week, I'm going to answer the question, what is going on? Some of you pick up the Bible, and you have no idea what is going on. You you, you close your eyes, you open it up, you put your finger down, you say, okay, I'll read there, but you have no idea. All right, geeks, we're going to talk about meta-narrative, or the big picture, the big story, what's going on. When I open up the Old Testament, how do I know what's happening in this? So this morning, what I want to do is I want to dig down deep in one question, um, where did we get this book from? I have three goals this morning. Goal number one. And you can write these, three, these words down, confidence. I want to increase your confidence in God's word and therefore God himself. Confidence. Number two, I want to increase your discernment. I want to help you sniff out cultural mantras and lies that lack truth or proof. There are so many ridiculous things that are said about the Bible and where it came from, and they are based in no history and whatsoever and no proof other than we just throw out these statements and they sound cute, and that's about it. Number three, I want to increase your excitement. Uh, I want to increase your excitement. I want to increase your excitement. I want to inspire you to pick up your Bible, and I want you to study in a way that makes you excited in a way you never have before. I want you to think about it differently. Sometimes we're so used to the Bible that we become numb to it. And so this morning, by the time we get done here, I want you to be 
pumped up. I want you to be inspired. I want you to be excited about God's word. Now, some of you, let's be honest, you know literally nothing about the Bible. Don't say amen, okay? Some of you are thinking it, right? You don't know anything. You don't know why the Old Testament is the Old Testament and the New Testament is the New Testament. Some of you are geeks. I mean, you are brainiacs. You love doctrine and history and theology, and you are geeks to the core, right? My job this morning is impossible. I have to keep the interest of all of you and help you all, okay? So pray for me. right? Because somehow we got to span the horizon of no knowledge to too much knowledge and get you to a place that is helpful. Now, I want you to know I grew a beard specifically for this message. I think beards make people look smarter, you know, especially when they're teaching. So that's it. So when this series is over, probably after Easter, I'll shave it off because there's no need to look intelligent. Uh, but I want to I clear the air. I think there are some misconceptions, and you may not have these, but I guarantee you someone in this room has one of these misconceptions. Number one, the Bible was not dropped from heaven in a leather-bound book. Someone say, preach, preach, amen, right? The Bible was not delivered by an angel like the Quran. The Bible was not dug up in a farmer's field in golden plates like the Book of Mormon. The Bible was not suddenly discovered in a clay jar with 66 books perfectly found in some papyrus. The Bible is not one book, but it's a collection of 66 books. The Bible was not written all at once, but it was written over 16 plus centuries. So my break some of your hearts, the Bible was not written in English. Not one, not one word of it, right? It was written in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. Um, not at all. So you have translations of those languages. The Bible, when you catch this, is not true because a council or a church leader somewhere in the early church said it was true. They're true because God inspired it. Catch the difference? Now, look at your notes with me. There's some words. you got to get these words, okay? Now, they're not too hard. We're going to use the first word. It's canon. Do you see the definitions on the side of your notes? They're right there. Uh, canon, most of you are thinking something that explodes and shoots cannonballs. That's not what we're talking about right now. Canon actually comes from a word that means a reed. It's like a reed you would find out by a river. And these reeds would become a standard of measuring, okay? And so how would we know what the standard is? Well, we would put the reed or the canon up to it so that we would know what truth is, what orthodoxy is. And so the canon actually just means reed, but it becomes a word that means it's a standard of truth. It is the thing by which other things are measured. So now in the church, we use this word in a couple ways, but primarily here's how we use it. In your notes, it says it is the list of books recognized as scripture. So when you open up your Bible, every one of those books has made it into the canon or the list of recognized books. And so I want you to imagine this for a moment. I want you to imagine you are commissioned to go into a farm and there's all these animals running all around. Your job is to go in and pick out all of the bunny rabbits, okay? So you go in and you know what a bunny rabbit looks like and you find all the bunny rabbits and you pick them out. Now, when you pick them out, did you all of a sudden turn them into bunny rabbits? No, your job was to go in amongst all the other animals and you were to find, to recognize that which was already a bunny rabbit. And this may sound silly, but you're going to remember that analogy, okay? In the same way, in the early church and over the centuries, nobody said, we're going to sanction this as scripture. People's job, the church's job, the Jews' job was to discover, to recognize that which God had inspired as scripture. 
Um, no council, no church, no man can make something the Bible that, is not, that God has not ordained it to be the Bible. And so here's what we're going to answer, some of these questions. How did we figure out what Scripture is and what it is not? But the very idea of canon, the very idea that there are books that God himself has inspired tells us two very important things. And here's the first one, that God wants to be known personally and specifically through Revelation. That God wants to be known personally and specifically through Revelation. That God has revealed details about himself that there is no other way to know. He went out of his way to move prophets and men to pen down with stone or ink his words so that you and I could know who he is. Pop quiz, does God want to be known personally and specifically by everyone in this room? You can say yes, absolutely. Here's the second thing it tells us, that God revealed himself to a specific group of people, that there are, there was a specific group of people that he wanted to know him, that God revealed himself not to a ton of nations, but to the Jewish people and then to the apostles, that God has revealed himself and given this revelation to a group of people to steward and to take care of. And so here's the so what before we get into how did we get these books. The very fact that the canon exists that God tells us that God is revealing himself and that God wants to be known personally by you. It tells us that every time you open up the Bible, you're not opening up one book, but you are opening up, hear me, a miracle that has taken hundreds and hundreds of years, over a thousand years to come together, and that has been preserved for almost 3,000, two to 3,000 years by God's people so that we might know truth and know who God is. And so when you open up your Bible, here's one of the things I want you to do. I want you to be excited. I want you to be pumped. I want you to know what you're holding in your hands is sacred. It is written, organized, collected, and preserved by God himself so that you personally might know him. So here's a, a simple application. You don't get to just come to church on Sundays, and that's the only Bible you're supposed to intake. It is incumbent upon us to devour God's word because God has more lovingly and generously revealed himself than you could possibly imagine. And it is now our job, as long as we are alive, to pour ourselves over this book, this self-revelation, to know him and to love him and to obey him. Can somebody give me an amen on this one, right? And so if you are not studying the Bible on a daily basis and pouring your life into it, you cannot use the excuse, well, I'm just a blue-collar dude. I'm just a simple person. Anybody everywhere can understand the basics of the Bible. Anybody. You may not understand everything there is to know about the Bible. Guess what? The smartest person on the planet can't know everything there is to know about the Bible. But the simplest of men and women can understand the truth of the Bible. And so here's my challenge to you. Stop using excuses, stopping undisciplined, and get excited and pumped because God has personally revealed himself to you in Scripture. Now, we're going to look at our notes. Number one, Old Testament canon. The way I want to um, deal with this is I asked questions, and then we're just going to answer the questions one at a time. Take out your Bible with me, um, your actual physical Bible. There should be one in front of you. If you scroll to it, you'll find the book of Matthew. And I just think the tactile nature of this is amazing. I mean, if you look at the hundreds of thousands of words, all of these pages. I mean, I want you to just feel it. Like, when we talk about how did we get the Old Testament, I want you to catch something. This is a big discussion, okay? I have to, like, somehow translate what originally in my notes was a four-hour lecture, okay, into about a 15-minute overview of how we got this, okay? This is enormous. Um, and so if you would bear with me, I think we're going to have a lot of fun here. Um, but how did, we how did we find out that these books... These 39 books were recognized as Scripture, and there are three ways that the Old Testament canon was developed. 
Uh, you can write these in your notes. Number one, by God's orchestration. We believe that God is sovereign or exercises his providence. He is orchestrating um, his people for his will. If God is going to reveal himself, he's also going to make sure that the right people get the message, correct? I mean, God isn't going to just aimlessly write a letter, cross his fingers, walk away, and hope that somehow the right people will get the right message. Will God ensure that the right people get the right message about himself? Absolutely. So number one, the Old Testament canon, it was developed by God's orchestration. Number two, it was developed or given to us through prophets, This is so important that prophets were the means in the Old Testament by which God revealed Scripture. We're going to watch this play itself out, but you've got to know that. If there is no prophet, there is no Scripture. If there is no prophet, there is no Scripture. Okay. Um, Thirdly, I'll say this slowly so you can write it down. The canon was developed progressively in four stages over about a thousand years. The Old Testament canon was developed progressively in four stages over about a thousand years. So let's look at the first stage, the first canon, the first set of writings that God's people collected and knew that they knew that they knew that this was sacred and from God and all people everywhere should submit themselves to it. What was, here's a pop quiz, somebody, if you can get this, I'm going to give you a hug after church and a high five, okay? What was the first canon that God's people ever had? Negative. Negative. Nope. What did you say? Nope. Nope. Genius. Gary Kralichak, you are the smartest person in the room. I love it. Uh, The Ten Commandments. I want to read to you. You may not be able to open up to all the scriptures, but I'll read to you from Exodus 34, verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words. In accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there, Moses, with the Lord, 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Before there was the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law, those are all synonyms. There was the Ten Commandments. This was the written, preserved word of God. They put it in the Ark of the Covenant. They set it aside, and here's what God wanted from the beginning. God wanted his words immortalized in stone or ink so that all generations could know without a shadow of a doubt what was true. And he wanted every generation to teach his words to successive generations so that they could know God personally. We need to catch this. God created the canon. The canon exists not because we stepped back and said, we should probably figure out which books are from God. From the beginning, God has... Uh, commanded his people to set aside specifically his words for his people that we might know and love him. So the first stage of the canon was the Ten Commandments. They were written on stone, put in the Ark of the Covenant. And the second stage of the Old Testament canon, now we have law, or synonyms would be, the, the Hebrew word is Torah, or Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five books. Penta, five, two books. And the Pentateuch, the law, the Torah, all synonyms, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, and what's the fifth one? Deuteronomy. You guys are so smart. It's amazing. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 24 and 25. When Moses had finished writing the words of the Torah, the law, the Pentateuch, take this book, oh, sorry, <laughs> the words of this law, in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness Against you. We see this that what's happening is that the canon is developing slowly, it's developing progressively, 
and it's developing in stages. Now, the big picture here is very simple. The Jews, generally speaking, broke the Old Testament down into three categories. Um, first category was the Torah. Pop quiz, were the Ten Commandments in the Torah? Everybody say yes. Yes. Even though it was the first stage, Torah is actually the first major section of the Old Testament. It's the first five books. These are considered, in a sense, by Jews to be the most sacred books. These are the most important. They're the foundational. Now, are all God's word equally God's word? Yes. But because these were the first, they had a primacy of importance in the Jewish life. The third stage of the Old Testament canon is a simple word. It's history. Uh, and this is what they called them. They called them the histories. And this is book like Joshua, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. It's narrative, general historical accounts of what happened by God's people. Now, pop quiz, was it a prophet, a priest, or a king who wrote down the histories? It was a prophet because he was commissioned to write God's word and set them up and preserve them for God's people. The prophets were. From beginning to end, it was always a prophet who would take God's words and he would write them down. Now, the prophets were commissioned by God to write down the history of the Jewish people and then to write down with them interpretation of what was supposed to happen. And so here are a couple um, scriptures for you just to give you an idea. Joshua 24, verse 25 and 26. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. So Joshua himself takes the Torah and he starts adding to the Torah. Now, even in the Torah, God said, do not add or take away from any of these books, right? Clearly, God wanted revelation, the the expansion of the canon, the revelation of himself to be progressive. Um, It wasn't done. So God's people were consistently waiting for more prophets to reveal more about who God is, what he's doing, and what his will is. God told men to write and to keep it, and to teach it. So they kept doing it and adding to it. First Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel, who is a prophet, yes? Yes. Told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book, and he laid it up before the Lord. So we find as these prophets continuing in the Old Testament, we could go over example after example after example. Jeremiah 32. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. So even prophecies like the book of Jeremiah, um, our God tells them, write them down, interpret them, and keep them in front of the people. Put them up with the book of the Lord. Uh, Make sure that God's people know that this is from me. Well, the fourth stage of the Old Testament canon is what is simply called the writings. And the writings consist of Old Testament poetry. Um, They consist of Proverbs and the Psalms. And Jesus himself references this. And I want you to hear Jesus talk about his understanding of the Old Testament canon, the Old Testament Uh, agreed upon books of scripture. Here's what he says in Luke 24, verse 44. These are my words which I spoke to you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the first category is law, right? And the prophets, which in his mind, this is the writings, this is how they spoke of them, the prophets and the writings, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here's what's interesting is that throughout the Psalms, throughout history in the Old Testament or the New Testament, this idea of Psalms is often used to refer to this general category of the writings. And even Jesus himself is referencing and using common language to say, look, there's a threefold breakdown of Old Testament of how we understand it. You have law, you have writings, and you you have history. Like, this is how we do it. Uh, and Jesus even understands there seems to be this idea that Jesus had a clear canon of Scripture that he understood. So when you get to the New Testament, here's what you need to know. Jesus and the New Testament authors had clarity of mind as to what the canon was. Okay? There was not some kind of like, oh, I wonder if this is in the Bible or not. It helps that Jesus was God, so he recognized everything that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. right? And Jesus knew those books that which were 
canon. Now, I want to review this quickly. The canon grew by God's orchestration. It grew progressively, and it grew through prophets. Do you see that? And so this is, this is the big picture, right? Now, here's the deal. Were any of you there to see this happen? They didn't have iPhones. They didn't have technology. The only thing that we know about the development of the Old Testament canon is how the Old Testament references itself and talks about it. That's all we have. That's it. And God's people are relying on this book to tell us how this book came together. Now, personally, what this tells me is a few things. That our God is not just boring. Does your God love poetry? He inspired poets to write some of the most beautiful poetry that has ever existed. Does your God love music and song? Pop quiz, does your God have a drum? I think so. I mean, David played with drums. There seems to be music, right? Uh, does God love stories and narrative? Yeah, absolutely. Does God love rules? <laughs> yeah, apparently he likes rules because there's 613 of them in the Torah, right? But God is so diverse. You think of God as the most cultured person you can possibly uh, uh, ever experience. God loves poetry and music and story and narrative. And he inspired all of these different genres so that God's people would know that God values all of these different expressions. I love that. Uh, number two, why do Catholics and Orthodox have extra books in their Old Testament canon. If, you're, if you go to a Catholic church or an Orthodox church, you'll realize very quickly they have seven extra books in their Bible, plus they have additions to the book of Esther and the book of Daniel at the end of their books. If you open up a Catholic Bible, you'll very quickly realize that. And subconsciously, if you haven't consciously gone here, you should be, it should raise up the question, can I trust my Bible? Why do so many people in Christendom have these books when so many people don't? Is there a battle? Who's right? Who's wrong? So I want to help you get inside of the argument. And uh, if you look at your notes, um, I want to ask you to get intellectual for a moment. There are three words you've got to understand. The first word is very simply the intertestamental period. Now, before you get lost in the amount of syllables, here's what it means. The period between the testaments. <laughs> Did your mind just explode, right? The Old Testament, the intertestamental period... Uh, begins in about 435 B.C. when the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, is written. Um, it's during the reign of a guy named Artaxerxes, which you need to know in a moment. You'll see this comes up. But Artaxerxes was uh, the ruler then, 435 B.C. And the intertestamental period ended when what testament began? The New Testament. Around the time of Christ is when the intertestamental period occurred. Specifically, this is a period of about 400 years where God's people... Um, and many of the books written in this time uh, testify that there were no prophets from God to record Scripture. That's very, very important. The God's people were waiting for a prophet. These are the years of silence. Imagine you keep having prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and then it feels like God stops speaking. This was 400 years of silence where God just stepped away from the nation of Israel, and he let them go um, on their own. And this is a very concerning time. Now, the second word we have to uh, learn here is the word apocrypha. Apocrypha, very simply, it's a group of Jewish books written in Greek during this intertestamental period. And generally speaking, the Apocrypha aren't bad or evil or anything of the sorts. Um, they're considered to be incredibly historic, historically reliable for the most part. Um, they're books that are valuable. The early church read them. The Jews read them. Like, nobody's scared of the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is not a big bad word that you should be, like, avoid and say, ah, oh, anathema, right? That's, that's not it. Uh, there is a lot of books that come under this category of Apocrypha. We couldn't even begin to unravel all of them. But there were seven specific books that were a part of the Apocrypha that got this name, Deuterocanonical. 
Very simple. It means second, deutero, canonical, canon, or the second canon, okay? They were a group of seven books written in this period of silence in Greek, not in Hebrew, the language of the Hebrews, uh, written in Greek, and they were considered to be very valuable. Now, the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church now, um, uh, they believe these to be Scripture. They include them in their canon. And here's what, uh, a list of the books for you, just so you know. Uh, first and second, Maccabees. A great historical read, though. You should read them anytime. They're awesome. Uh, helps you understand what was happening to the Jewish people through a ruling class of a family called the Maccabees. Very interesting. Tobit, Judith, Sirach, Wisdom, uh, Barak, and their additions again to Daniel and Esther. So now, why do they have these in here? And I want to answer the question by answering the third question. And the third question is this. What Old Testament canon did Jesus, the apostles, and the Jews use? I'll just add in there, shouldn't that be the one I use? That may sound strange to you, but when I look at this question, I want to know the answer to that. I want to know, what was Jesus' Old Testament, and how do I use that one? When the apostles were writing, what was their Old Testament? I want to use that one. And so for me, there's this big question throughout church history. Church history starts after the age of the apostles and really moves to the present day, okay? And church history has debated this over and over and over again. When was the Apocrypha added, et cetera? We'll get to all that in a minute. But here's my real question. My canon, I want it to be Jesus' canon. So somebody give me an amen on that one. Does that seem rational to you? Uh, that seems rational to me. So I want to approach this in a couple ways. First, I want to look at the first century Jews. And uh, you can turn there or listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews were entrusted with the oracle of God. So by the time the first century comes around, right, the Jewish people had been tasked to preserve the, the oracles, the words of God, the scriptures of God. And by the time Jesus was born, he was raised up in this tradition, in this nation, whom God used to preserve that which were the true oracles of God, that which was truly canon, that which was truly scripture. Now, there's a couple things that happened in the first century I just think are super important. Now, this isn't going to convince anybody on its own, but I think accumulatively, when you put all the evidence together, the picture just becomes so clear it's undeniable. So in the first century, there are two, um, uh, two experiences that happened that tell you exactly what the Jewish canon was. The first was a council that happened in AD 90. It's called Jamnia. Uh, but what was important about it is that it happened 20 years after um, the temple and the city of Jerusalem were destroyed. And this group of scholars were from the Pharisaic tradition, which was Jesus's theological tradition, and they got together, and so many writings and so many books were destroyed. And they got together, and they realized that there was some question about what was the canon. And they came together, and guess what they decided were the canon? The exact 39 books that we have was the canon that they chose, and said these are the 39 books. They actually said 22 because they combined books, like the 12 Minor Prophets were one book, First and Second Samuel was one book, First and Second Kings was one book, but they said these 22 books, these are the books that are divinely ordained, inspired by God. And they left out all of the deuterocanonical books. Now, again, at this time, they weren't Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, but what they did do is they did identify what the agreed-upon consensus at that time in history was of the Jewish canon. It's called the Palestinian canon. 
Now, the second thing that happens is there's a Jewish historian. His name is Josephus. He lived in the first century. Josephus um, wrote so much, and he commented on this season extensively. So I want you to pay very close attention to what Josephus says, and I want you to listen. Are your listening ears on? Are you ready to pay attention? He's going to mention Artaxerxes, who reigned during the time of Malachi, who was the last Old Testament prophet. Okay? So from Artaxerxes, 435 B.C., when Malachi was written, to our own time in the first century, the complete history has been written but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of prophets. Here's what he says. From 435 B.C. when Malachi was written to the first century, God's people are writing book after book after book. They're recording their history. But then he steps back and he says, but I want you to understand something. These are not on par with canon or with scripture because there was no succession of prophets there was no prophet in line to interpret it. This is why we call it the intertestamental period because even the first century Jews knew that the prophets had ended and they agreed with the books historically, generally. They're great books, but the first century Jews didn't understand them as canon. He goes on and he says, we have an innumerable multitude of books among us from this time, the Apocrypha, disagreeing from and contradicting one another, but only 22 books which contain the records of all past times which are justly believed to be divine. And these 22 books are our 39 books in our English Bibles. It begs the question, what was Jesus' canon? I'm going to give you the simple answer. It was the Palestinian canon. Michael, how do you know that? I think I can prove to you that I know, that I know, that I know. <clears throat> and here's how we're going to do it. Um, first is this. We understand that Jesus had a threefold understanding of the Old Testament from Luke 24. He says that there's Torah, there are writings, and there are history. That was his breakdown. All of the early Jews, all of the early church, broke the deuterocanonical books, these seven books that you find in your Catholic Bibles, into a fourth category. They were this fourth category of, uh, we'll call them Septuagint or Apocryphal or deuterocanonical writings. They had a fourth category. Even Jesus did not honor the fourth category. But we're not done yet. That's not even the, the best argument. Do you know how many times Jesus quotes the Old Testament? Tons. I mean, there's, it's hard to find the exact number. We're just going to say a lot. Do you know how many times Jesus quotes anything from the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books? Zero. Not once. Not even once. He didn't even deem it worthy to talk about it or make reference to it. And yet he's quoting the Old Testament consistently and regularly. But it gets better. The apostles, let's look at their canon. I think we can say without a shadow of a doubt that the apostolic canon, the canon of the, of the, of the apostles themselves, was Jesus' canon, which was the Jewish canon, which we call the Palestinian canon. And here's how. I want to read you this. Our Old Testament is quoted at least directly 295 times as Scripture. So it's quoted as Scripture in the New Testament. Our Old Testament is directly referenced at least 695 times in our New Testament. Our Old Testament is indirectly referenced as many as 4,105 times in our New Testament. There are um, four occasions where secular writings, not even Christian or just secular writings, are referenced in our New Testament. I mean, the New Testament is not afraid to reference, right, different kinds of writings and different things like that. We're talking thousands of times the Old Testament is referenced. Do you know how many times the New Testament references explicitly or implicitly any of the seven deuterocanonical books? Zero. Do you hear that? Feel the weight. Zero. So I want, to make a, I want to make a statement here, and I want you to hear it. I don't care what a council decides later. If Jesus and the apostles did not deem them to be worthy of canon to be quoted in hundreds and thousands of references, direct or indirect, to the Old Testament, 
it lends you to think that maybe, maybe, maybe they did not view them as scripture. Of all of the 39 books, five of them, at the end of the day, um, are not directly quoted in Scripture, although almost all of them are explicitly. But they have seven whole books, never even mentioned or alluded to, that are already under such controversy. Leaves one wondering, hmm, could this be in there? Now, the last question on the Old Testament. What books almost didn't make the Old Testament canon and why? Really two in particular. Esther almost didn't make it because it never ever mentions God. This was a concern for some of the Jewish people. Although you see God's providential hand throughout the entire book. The second one is Song of Solomon because it was too erotic. I mean, it was just, it pushed the Jews to the edge. They're like, this is too much. We, we don't know if God, could God inspire something this erotic? And the, and the answer is absolutely. So now we get to the New Testament. Now, thankfully, the New Testament discussion goes much quicker, even though there are more questions. You guys ready? You hanging with me? Good? Awesome. Jesus prophesied that there would be more revelation from God. So Jesus himself wants his disciples to know there will come a time when the canon or the words of God will be added to. And here's what he says in John 14, 25. All this I've spoken to you while you are still with me, while I'm still with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Now, what would be the purpose of reminding them? So that they could do what God's people have done for centuries past. They could write them in ink immortalize them so that God's people would know who God is, know what he wants, and love him and obey him. And so this is Jesus's intention. The canon was open in the first century. So how did the early church determine the New Testament canon? There are 27 books. Thankfully, Roman Catholics, Orthodox, um, and even uh, Evangelical Protestants, we all agree there are 27 books in the New Testament. Can somebody give me an amen? Right? That's, I'm just saying I'm satisfied with that. Like That makes me very, very happy to know that we're all on the same page with this one. But here's what you need to understand. The process of recognizing these books was not culminating until about the 4th century. I'm going to help you understand why. And some of you may say, that makes me feel like I can't trust it because it took so long for them to get their act together. But I think when you understand what was happening at the time, you will get it. So there are four criteria. There are four things. Write these in your note. And this is the criteria that they would use to determine whether or not a writing was canon inspired by God. Number one, it had to be apostolic, meaning it had to have apostolic authority or endorsement. The apostles were the new prophets. They were the ones designated by God to communicate and write down scripture. They were attested to by God through miracles and crazy things, right? And that was one of the reasons that God gave them those abilities, was to testify that they are prophets from God here to establish a new covenant and a new, te- new Testament church. So number one, were the writings apostolic, endorsed, or written by apostles? Number two, acceptance. The early church, meaning the earliest first two centuries, they wanted to see that the early church saw these as scriptures, that somebody understood them, because the closer you get back to that, the more clearly you understand what they were thinking and what is true. Number three, consistency. The documents must have the overall feel and character of what we know that we know that we know are scripture. And then finally, number four is they need to be orthodox. They need to harmonize theologically with what we know is scripture. So they had four primary things they would look for. Uh, that they would use to discern what is a canonical book. Here's the second question. When was it finalized? Well, it was not until 367 AD when a pastor named Athanasius um, was the first one to write down what we know are our 27 books. 367 AD, almost 300 years after Christ, 
was the first time that what you hold in your Bibles um, as the New Testament was actually solidified. 393, there was a synod in Hippo, and that clarified and finalized basically for God's people um, what the canon was for the New Testament. But here's my question. Why did it take so long? I want you to, I want you to catch this. From the time of Christ until about 325 AD, the church went through incredible, incredible persecution. The church was largely underground. The church was hiding. People were being killed and martyred. This idea that you think that they had systematic organization that was neat and tight and worked really, really well and they could text each other and email and go to Google and all this stuff, they had nothing. We have persecuted people from Spain up to northern Europe, down to Africa, all the way to India and beyond. We have people all over the known world, and they are getting different writings from different people. Maybe a, a letter of Romans got its way all the way over to India, but the letter of Ephesians made it all its way over to Spain, but they didn't have each other's letters. Well, how do we know that this is from Paul and that's from Paul? In the meantime, there was a persecution in the early 4th century by Diocletian, and he was killing Christians left and right, and his object, his goal, was to destroy all Christian literature. And so a common experience is that they would go into homes, and these Christians would have writings, all these different writings, and they would say, give us all of your Christian writings. And so what they would try to do is give them um, all of their, we'll call it their, their good resources, but that weren't Scripture. And they tried to keep and protect and to hide all of the things that they knew as Scripture. I mean, if you think about just the issues of persecution, of travel, of distance, of poverty, of education, of literacy, of communication, I mean, this list goes on and on and on. And it wasn't until 325 AD where Constantine became a Christian and Christianity was the legal religion of the Roman Empire. And it's about 325 AD when all of this stuff starts to come together, where synods or groups of church leaders get together to make decisions on some of the big issues. And this event with him becoming a Christian and making Christianity legal throughout the empire fast-forwarded this process of canonization. But then there's this other issue, and you need to know this. In about the second century, there's this group of people, we'll call them heretics, called Gnostics. And Gnostics believed in a secret knowledge, and what they would do is they would get their ideas out by writing books that were um, promoting their ideas by taking biblical characters and saying, like, the Gospel of Adam and Eve, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas— these books are insane. Here's the problem. In these centuries, while there's persecution and no commun little communication and little organization, hundreds of Gnostic Gospels are making their way all around the empire. And these pastors, I mean, could you imagine just being a poor pastor of a persecuted church somewhere in India, and you were trying to figure out which Gospels are real? I got this Gospel of Thomas, and I got a Gospel of John. How do I know which one is real? And it just slowed this process down. And this was the challenge. Discerning heresy was of the utmost importance for the early church pastors and leaders. I want to read to you um, um, a quote from the book of Thomas. I want to see if I can find it here. It's so insane um, that I think it's actually kind of just worth reading. Gospel of Thomas. Uh, so I want you to imagine you are a poor pastor in India in the second century, and you get a gospel from Thomas, right? One of the disciples. Here's what it says. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary go forth from among us, for women are not worthy of the life. Ladies? Anyone? All right, keep going. Jesus said, Behold, I shall lead her, that I may make her male, in order that she also may become a living spirit like you males. For every woman who makes herself male shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Anybody? Could you imagine being a poor pastor in India and getting this, and it says the gospel of Thomas, and you're like, could Thomas have really, really written this? You know, and so the quandary, the challenge that these guys had to go through, this just wasn't an easy thing where everybody just got all their ideas together in their manuscripts and said, oh, let's figure it out. 
You'll see different versions of canons throughout the first few centuries because, honestly, it was just an incredibly difficult time, and they didn't have everybody together in one place to get all the right information. But when Constantine became a Christian in that fourth century, this process fast-forwarded, and that's why we see the canon coming together so quickly in that time. Does that make sense? What New Testament books almost did not make it? Almost, basically, Hebrews all the way to the end of the Bible almost didn't make it. At one point, every one of those books were seriously questioned. Um, Hebrews, they thought it was Paul, but then they read it, and they're like, this, is, this does not sound like Paul in any way, shape, or form. So nobody really knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. All of the books after that, they're called the general epistles. They're not written by Paul. Um, all of them, except for 1 Peter, were seriously questioned. I mean, it took 300 years for these books to be finalized and for people to say, yes, these are canon. But all of God's people agreed on them. Revelation, honestly, it's a weird book, you know? Anybody? Like, you just read it, and you're like, where did this come from? I mean, pfft. What's going on here? And it was so weird that they thought, this clearly there's got to be some kind of problem with this book. And eventually they realized that it was Scripture. Have you ever wondered why the New Testament books are ordered this way? The answer is really simple and weird. First of all, the Gospels became first because it's all about Jesus. Again, give me an amen on that one. They're ordered in a way to communicate a message. Now, the next thing that came is Acts because Acts is basically part two of Luke's, which, Luke, which is one of the Gospels. But then after the Gospels, what are the most important writings of the New Testament? Paul's letters. I mean, this, what, he was the standard. And so they put his first. Now, at the end of Paul's letters comes Hebrews, because nobody knew whether or not it was legit or not. And then after that, you have the general epistles. And they are basically in order of word length, shortest to longest. Why is Revelation at the end? Because we are an expectant people. We're built on Jesus Christ, trained in the doctrine of the apostles, and we're waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ. The, the story of the organization of the New Testament is our story. A people built on Jesus, needing the word of God through the apostles, expecting and waiting for Jesus to come back. So when you look at your New Testament, I mean, it's fine if you just pick it up, but I want you to understand that church leaders way back in the day, they put this together to communicate a very beautiful message to you that you would never, ever, ever forget. This is one of my favorite questions. Are we missing any books? Yes. Absolutely. Here's what I mean. There was an original letter to the Corinthians. We, have, we, have no, we, we don't know where it is. Paul references it in 1 Corinthians 5.9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Well, what letter is that? Because this letter is 1 Corinthians, so there must have been a zero Corinthians. In Colossians 4.16, he says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Anybody have the letter of Laodicea? Some people have said maybe it's the letter of Ephesians, but we don't know. Um, but here's the deal. Uh, could the canon get bigger in theory? Uh -huh. If we can find another apostolic letter from Paul specifically that we can validate with certainty, let me tell you, Zondervan and Crossway are going to be the wealthiest publishing companies in all of human history. Moody Publishing, better get on that. Let's, let's be honest. Why did so many books not make the New Testament canon? Gospel of St. Thomas, Gospel of Mary... The answer is simple. It's not because there's some secret plot to hide the truth about Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Anybody with any integrity in any way, shape, or form who reads any history books at all, who has a conscience that can do anything and just literally has a brain, okay? Let's put it that way. You cannot read the first century, second century, third century, and fourth century writings and think that that idea that there was a conspiracy is true. It is inane and ridiculous. The reason these books didn't make it is because they're Gnostic, they weren't written in the first century. They weren't written by apostles, given apostolic endorsement. And if you just pick them up, they are insane. You start reading one chapter, and you're like, why am I wasting my life? 
And if you're liberal and you want to question everything, you could say, yeah, there's a, all these books that didn't make it. There's a conspiracy. That sounds cute, but it is not grounded in any historical fact in any way, shape, or form ever. It's just not. And then was there a story of the Bible hidden by the church, a conspiracy to cover up the true identity of Jesus? Answer everybody. No. So I want to close with this. Why did God write his words with ink? Number one, to protect the integrity of his message. Oral tradition is subject to compromise. And God wanted his words with clarity and decisiveness to be transmitted from generation to generation. And ink and stone is the way to do it. Number two, because God loves you and he wants you to know him and to be loved by him. And number three, evangelism, so that everybody, everywhere, can have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the revelation of God through the word. I want to close. I'm going to read this to you, and I'm reading this. Um, worship team, you can come up. Part of this is from our membership book. The canon is a miracle. The canon is comprised of 66 books written by more than 40 authors. These authors were kings, Peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, scholars, historians, prophets, tax collectors, tent makers, military leaders, prime ministers, and doctors. They wrote from dungeons, palaces, roads, islands, hillsides, and deserts across Africa, Asia, and Europe. And these authors wrote these books in their original languages, which included Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Their literary style included poetry, history, letters, prophecy, proverbs, and biographies. The time frame of its writing occurred over 1,500 plus years with no material inconsistencies or contradictions. The Bible remains one unified masterpiece from beginning to end. The impossibility, the impossi- this impossible consistency screams of a divine architect who purposely and seamlessly moved men and women to record his words throughout continents, cultures, and history. But God did not just inspire each author's content He also orchestrated each book's place in what we call the canon. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for preserving your words for thousands of years. And thank you that we can trust the Bible. We thank you that you are the God who reveals. And we have the privilege of knowing you. And for that, we worship you in the great name of Jesus Christ, the greatest revelation of you we have ever had or ever will have. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen.